I want to turn our attention this morning, or we will turn our attention momentarily, to Hebrews chapter 2. And it's my great joy to bring the word of God uh, uh, for us today. Um, The giving of attention is basic to being kind and giving honor. To hear and be heard by another person is uniquely satisfying, even an act of love. But giving attention is not cheap. It's a simple thing, but it's not necessarily an easy one. When I think about paying attention, my mind goes back to the first year of college, Chemistry 101, where I had, uh, in my first semester, in one of the large lecture halls, I was commuting an hour away to a 7.30 a.m. class, and you know what I'm talking about, a large venue, the folding theater seats, early morning, long lecture, and you keep bracing yourself to bring yourself back to What was he saying? Giving attention like that takes intention. In other words, you can't give attention at 7.30 a.m. in the morning if you were up till one the night before. That's a very hard lesson for a college student to learn. If you sit 100 feet back in the dark lecture hall, it's very hard to pay attention. You can't give attention at 7.30 in the morning if you let yourself slump down into your seat for long. Now, I passed that class, but it wasn't because of my attention or my attendance. Sometimes our attention needs assistance. In a classroom long before that, when I was in the third grade, uh, I and my teachers realized that I could no longer see the board. And so very soon I found myself in the optometrist's office gazing into one of those big, strange uh, uh, mechanical machines with a thousand different lenses and sitting there reading the eye eye charts through dozens of different uh, grades of lenses that the optometrist would let you uh, try. From the big E on the eye chart all the way down, right? You keep reading and reading until you can't distinguish a U from a V or an E from an H and there you stop And the optometrist begins to say, is this better? One or two? One or two? Now, how about three? And you do that over and over again until finally you have focus and you can see again. Perhaps more than any other age before us, we need to give attention to how we pay attention. We have a near infinite demand, just like Comcast brand, Xfinity. More content is being created daily than anyone could consume in their entire lifetime. To say nothing of email, of text, and chat, they're literally coming at us at the speed of light over fiber optic cables to cell towers and right into our back pockets at a moment's notice. And it's amazing. It's not all bad. I love it. You can watch any show in human history at any time, night or day. You can instantaneously search 20 years of files and emails. That's awesome. But it points to a key challenge of our times, maintaining focus and using our limited attention wisely. While the opportunities are near infinite, our attention, like time, is very finite. We don't merely give attention. Even the translation here says we pay attention. It costs something which is exactly the right way to think about it. 
Paying attention to something very specific is the theme of our scripture today. So I invite you to stand wherever you are for the reading of God's word and turn in your Bibles to the New Testament book of Hebrews, which we are journeying through together, to chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The Holy Spirit, speaking through the writer of Hebrews, says, Therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the incredible letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. We thank you for um, how powerful and even at times overwhelmingly um, great the good news is presented in the book of Hebrews. I pray, Father, that you would help us, Lord, to pay attention to what we're reading, what we're hearing from your word today. Open our hearts, comfort us, challenge us, um, bring us uh, back to yourself, Lord. As the song says, we're, we're prone to wonder. Lord, we feel it. So we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us today and we pray that you would be glorified in Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews 2 verse 1 begins with a classic word, therefore. And as the old adage says, when you see a therefore, you ask, what's it there for? Well, it immediately follows the preacher's opening in chapter one. Notice I just call it the preacher's opening because I actually think it's best to think of the writer of Hebrews as the preacher of Hebrews. The letter actually, scholars tell us, bear no forms of a letter, but all the hallmarks of an ancient discourse, what we would call today a sermon. And this therefore, this therefore that begins our text is looking back to the opening proclamation of his discourse where, he, where a passage uh, where the preacher just launches into his theme and it radiates with glory and pulsates with light about this Jesus who is the final word of God, the very radiance of the glory of God and exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, the writer says. He made purification for sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is superior to angels in every way. He is the very son of God. He is the king upon the eternal throne of heaven and the Lord who made the heavens. Through all of this, as he's making these points, the preacher of Hebrews just weaves in all these Old Testament, seven explicit Old Testament quotations to to drive home and to make his case. And then after doing that, he says, therefore, therefore, We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. What is it that we have heard that we must pay much closer attention to? What is it that we must not drift away from? And the answer lies in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation declared first by the Lord? It is the great salvation 
that the good news, the gospel announces that we are called to give close attention to and not to neglect. Because Jesus' word is so much greater than the words of angels, therefore, we must take all the more heed. The old King James says, more earnestly take heed and give careful attention, pay attention to this great salvation that we have heard from Jesus himself. This is a warning, a, a call, an a exhortation that the preacher of Hebrews who uh, uh, is going to make this point over and over again, this is the reason for his message to his audience. And he's going to return to it time and time again. He's going to, passage after passage, chapter after chapter, he's going to lift up Jesus uh, 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 majestically, magnificently. And then he's going to look to his audience and say, so take heed, so listen, so remember, so pay attention. Look, consider, believe. So let's do what the preacher is asking. Let's pay attention carefully right now. What is so great about this salvation? I have to confess, growing up in the church and the thousands of times I've heard the song Amazing Grace played, that I can take for granted the song and what the song is saying because I'm so familiar Yes, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Heard it at funerals, church services, time and time again. That our salvation is great is such a basic point that we far too often gloss over it. When we even share with one another at times, I do this, I, 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 I've noticed others do this, where, where we might make the most basic point even, even in discussion where it's like our, our, our gospel is so great and and we, we sort of, mm, amen, that's true. Amen, grace is amazing. But because it is true that our salvation is so great, we should oft remind ourselves of this and shake ourselves free from the attitude of taking it for granted. This salvation is so great because it accomplishes what we've seen in chapter one. It accomplishes the purification of sins. This salvation is great because it's Jesus for us. It's Jesus stepping into our place to take the death and destruction that would surely destroy us unless he stepped into the way and went to the cross. This salvation is so great because it is finished. Chapter 1 verse 3 says, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. And as we've heard in uh, the previous week, this means that Jesus has finished his work, he's conquered his enemies, and he could sit down at the right hand of God and rest from his work. This salvation is so great because it is the Lord himself who has achieved this salvation. The Lord did not delegate this salvation, this great deliverance to angels or to prophets or to kings of the Old Testament. Instead, the, the God of Israel himself came in Israel's midst and became their prophet, their priest, their king, and their sacrifice. Take a moment and take all that in what Hebrews 1 is saying the gospel means.
You are right now listening to the writer of Hebrews say to you, when we read it, when we, when, we, when we spoke the word, when we read the words of God, these words are coming to us now, two millennia later. And what he said to his hearers, we say to ourselves, this glorious good news, the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth, sent his own son, very God of very God, as the Nicene Creed says, God the Son, who is eternally with the Father, one who is always radiating the divine glory, one through whom all things were made, and who is right now, right now, upholding the universe by his word. The very God of very God, the man Jesus of Nazareth, is that one. Yes, Jesus the Galilean. Jesus, the son of Mary, Jesus who hung upon the cross and died a death among thieves and was buried with sinners, as Isaiah 53 promised. That Jesus is the Lord of glory, and he accomplished this. Praise God. Now, as moderns, this should not be less amazing to us than it is, than it was to them at that time. Just take the fact that, that, that Jesus is the Lord of creation. All we know about the world now doesn't make this less amazing, but it makes it more amazing. They knew the heavens were big. We know that they are nearly infinite. Not billions of stars in the sky but scientists tell us that there are perhaps 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. They knew about the visible stars. We know about black holes and quasars and pulsars and all kinds of other things in the night sky. They knew the human body was amazing, but we know about the nature of DNA, the complexity of the eye, neural pathways in the brain, we can see what God has done. We know the millions of species on planet earth and the almost infinite variety of life that he made. And Jesus, the same Jesus who hung on the cross is right now in charge of all of that reality here on earth, in our lives, and everywhere in every one of those 100 billion observable galaxies. And yes, in this crisis, Jesus is reigning As the, old, uh, as the psalmist would often say, Selah. To hear a great truth, to hear the glorious truths of how we are redeemed and then pause because it's breathtaking. Amen. Now the obvious question is, as great as all that sounds, how can we know that this gospel message is actually reliable? How is it true? How, how do we know if these words are authentic? Well, the writer of Hebrews, like a good communicator, like a good uh, uh, preacher, anticipates the kinds of things that his audience is thinking. And so he says, he, he puts this right in there, verse 3, that it's great because it was declared at first by the Lord. And I think this is something when we read this text, we gloss over quickly. We think of preaching the gospel now. We think of the apostles. But the writer of Hebrews says, this gospel was first announced by Jesus. 
that the apostles and writers of the New Testament did not invent the message of the gospel, but in fact, Jesus himself was the first preacher of the New Testament gospel. They learned it from Jesus. He tried many times to explain that he was going to go to Jerusalem, that he was going to suffer and die, but on the third day rise again, and they, they, they never quite got it until after the resurrection and being filled with the Spirit. Luke 24 gives a great example of this. Two disciples are traveling to the town of Emmaus, and they're unaware that Jesus has rose from the dead. They thought that he was still in the grave. But Jesus meets them, unbeknownst to them. They don't recognize him. And begins to teach them, Luke 24, 27 says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And I, and I, 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 I love this because what we see in Hebrews where the writer is going scripture by scripture through the Old Testament, and he did that in chapter one, and he's gonna do it all through the entire uh, a sermon or letter of Hebrews. The apostles, these Christian preachers learned that from Jesus. Jesus is the one who sat down with them and went from Moses through the law, through the prophets, through the entirety of the Old Testament and explained what it meant about who he was and what he done, what, what he had accomplished. Secondly, it was attested by those who heard that Jesus didn't do this in a private room where he swore people to non-disclosure agreements, where, where they, no one knew what happened inside the room where Jesus communicated these things, but rather Jesus did them publicly. He, he did them in ways that could not be denied by all of Jerusalem, by all of Judea, by those who were there, the governors, the rulers even, could not deny what Jesus was saying, what he was preaching. And when he rose again, and the New Testament is clear on this, that Jesus didn't appear to just a few. He did it first. But Paul says he ultimately appeared up to, up to 500 brethren at once. This gospel that the writer is now preaching, it's, we should say that the writer of Hebrews here is probably preaching to a, 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 a house church in maybe Rome or a city of the Roman Empire. Um, uh, and his and the believers in the, in the congregation, the believers in this small church were probably former members of a Jewish synagogue who had known the Old Testament and are even uh, perhaps straying back towards purely Jewish ways of understanding God and the Bible. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, this goes to Jesus but it, it wasn't just that Jesus said these things. The, the things I'm talking to you about, they come to us from eyewitnesses. I love this point. The writer of Luke, Luke chapter 1, Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Peter 1, 1 John 1. The preacher says we know these things because we know people who witnessed these things. Ultimately, third, he grounds what, uh, his testimony in what God has done. Jesus declared the gospel. It was then declared by the apostles and confirmed and brought down to us by eyewitness. But ultimately, he says, God also, verse four, God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So God corroborated their testimony in a way that people that witnessed what Jesus was doing and people that witnessed what the apostles were doing could not deny 
Even if they didn't believe the gospel, they could not deny that God was at work. This is what we see in the purpose of the miracles performed by Jesus and the apostles. To confirm the message of the gospel. Yes, Jesus moved with compassion, healed the sick, opened the blind eye, gave uh, the, lames the, uh, the lame ability to walk again. He healed lepers. He cast out demons. And he did, uh, over and over again, we see in the Gospels that he did that moved by compassion. But the clear purpose of all those things and the clear purpose of when those things happened uh, under the ministry of the apostles was to confirm the gospel and bring glory to the God of that gospel. All demonstrating that the kingdom of God had come. And these two were not done in small private audiences. Jesus did this publicly, walking along the way, entering cities, leaving towns and villages, disrupting funerals and raising the dead. This is not small magic tricks, but compassionate, gracious generosity. On one occasion, he fed 5,000 with two loaves and five fishes. All this and more is what makes our salvation so great. Amen. Praise God. And it means so much more than what we've covered We've talked about the gospel, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But what it means is almost infinite in what we could explore. And it is because of the very greatness of this salvation, the writer is saying, and the very greatness of the Savior who accomplished it, that the writer of Hebrews, the preacher, issues his warning, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. He goes on in verse 2 and 3, kind of uh, uh, strange, a passage that requires a little bit of unpacking. For since the message, verse 2, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. What is he talking about? The message, the angels, the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. Well, he, he is pointing us back to the Old Testament. It became common in Jewish understanding and interpretation of the Old Testament to look at Deuteronomy 32 and understand that much of the ministry of God to Israel was performed through the work of angels, which is why the writer in chapter 1 and here is making such a contrast between Jesus and the ministry of angels. But the writer says that even the message, the Old Testament, the law, the, 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 uh, the Exodus and the word of God to Israel in the book of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that message declared by angels proved to be reliable. At that time, in that place, that was the word of God to God's people at the time. And he says, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This contrast with Israel in the Old Testament uh, uh, could hopefully be in the forefront of our thoughts, having just gone through Exodus. In Exodus, the uh, Israel was rescued dramatically, uh, uh, marvelously from Egypt, and it appeared that they were all headed in the same direction to the promised land. But very similar to, uh, uh, to travelers that can merely be in the same spot on the road at the same time, not all in Israel 
were believers in the God of Israel. Some literally ignored the promise of God even as they witnessed it. We saw that uh, in, in the, uh, is it Exodus 24, where literally while God is speaking to Moses, giving Moses the law, the people, or some of the people, are making a golden calf that they call the Lord and bowing down to worship it. They complained immediately following the exodus across the Red Sea. They complained after, after great signs and wonders. Basically, though they were in the same camp, there were believers and there were unbelievers. And some ignored the salvation that the Lord provided right before their eyes and suffered the consequences of neglecting it. So what the writer is saying is what was true of them is even more true of us because our salvation is that much greater. It is salvation not from Egypt, but it is salvation from sin and death and hell. The writer is simply saying there is no other savior, there is no other salvation that can save. There is no other way. How could there be? The one who died on the cross is the one who made all things. It makes no sense at all to imagine that there was any other way than through him. Now, this can be a bit thorny to unpack a little bit of the practical uh, 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 application of what we see here. But I think we can simply say that the warning here is real. But it's real in a particular way. We believe fully in the doctrines of the grace of God. Everyone who is in Christ belongs to God and is safe forever. And everyone who is in Christ, God will save to the end. Praise God and amen. That assurance belongs to everyone who is in Christ. The writer of Hebrews is clear about this over and over and over again. That Jesus is glorious to save. That God is mighty to save through Christ. So the assurance belongs to everyone who is in Christ. And who is that? Well, it is those whose present faith is in Jesus. Every assurance of hope can be given to the believer who struggles with sin and doubt. Thank God. Because that is the journey of every believer. Amen? Every believer is presently struggling with sin and doubt because we've been justified, we're being sanctified, but we're not yet glorified. But the writer will make clear here and then later that no assurance can be given to one who, even though once perhaps publicly claimed Jesus, but has since departed from him as well. That is why Paul was so upset in Galatians and why the writer of Hebrews is so stern in his warnings throughout the book. To depart from Jesus, to walk away from the salvation he offers. And and the writers of both Galatians and Hebrews is saying, when you begin to decide who Jesus is for yourself, perhaps he's just a lawgiver like Moses. Perhaps he's a great teacher like Gandhi. Perhaps he's even an angel To depart from Jesus is to depart from the Lord of glory. And the call to that person is the same as to all unbelievers. To repent and believe the gospel. And the call to those who are in Christ, (laughs) amazingly enough, is the writer saying to do the same thing. 
We are called to keep repenting and to keep believing that our faith is an active, present action, not something that we merely point to in the past. The glory of the gospel is that our Father is a good Father. Perhaps the one parable that, you, that most readily comes to mind is the parable of the prodigal son, where God the Father is pictured as standing at the door with arms open wide for all who wander and run home. And he receives all with great joy and celebrates. Amen. Many years ago, my parents were on a trip to Acapulco, Mexico. They both could swim. They were swimmers, uh, uh, but had not spent much time in the ocean. One day they went for a swim in the Pacific and they enjoyed themselves for some time until they realized that they could not actually make any progress in swimming back to shore. But no matter how much effort they were getting further and further out, they got caught in a rip current that they could not resist. Out of the blue, they were saved by a boy who swam up on a makeshift piece of wood and, and reached out and, and held them and helped them swim back to shore. And that's the image here when the writer says, lest we drift away. Adrift at sea, to be subject to its whims and its currents with no apparent direction. The writer says, pay much closer attention lest we drift away from it. And drifting away is how most who depart from Christ forsake him. Anyone who's lived for Christ for many years and who, who have had friends, fellow believers, family members, acquaintances, who have at some point eventually completely given up on the faith or, or um, uh, broke with the church in, in, in a spectacular way, it looks very sudden in the moment, like a, like a snap decision. But in truth, what the writer is saying and what we often can know from experience is, is that that never happens overnight, but is a slow, steady erosion at the very foundations of what one holds dear. And there are a number of forms of drifting, but three uh, come to mind this morning. One is to slowly discard the Christian faith one element at a time until finally you discard the last vestige of it, Jesus himself, no faith, no Bible, no Jesus. Sometimes this happens publicly where people give up and, and admit that they're giving up on, on say, the exclusivity uh, of Scripture or, or the authority of the Bible, but claim to hold to specific parts of it that they can make sense of. But maybe that's going on in your own heart where you have decided that you can accept one part uh, of Scripture but not another and then one day it just appears that you can no longer accept the faith, but in fact you've been negotiating and surrendering um, key, moment, key points of doctrine over time. Another is kind of the opposite, and I've, no, I've, I, I, I've seen this happen through the years as well, and that is instead of going away from Jesus, it's, it's, it's to move um, it's to look as if one is moving closer to Jesus, but to delve into esoteric and strange and fringe ideas about the faith and about Jesus, to adopt things that, that nobody else holds and, and, or, or that the, the mainstream, that your church, your local church doesn't hold, to insist others have to do this. Maybe it's, um, uh, we, we see this in, in American religion, some of the uh, uh, most 
um, visible religions of our day, Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses are in fact this very kind of thing. We would plainly say that they hold to Jesus, but not the Jesus who is very God of very God and the Lord of glory, but a Jesus who is less than the God of glory. The third way that comes to mind is to completely ignore the sin in your life, to gradually surrender and give no struggle against your sin. And here I would say that it would be a tell that if, we, if, if, if there is no struggle in our heart and in our life with sin, that there's no conviction that we would wonder where, uh, what have we drifted from? What are we not hearing? When we notice any of these things going on in our heart or mind or we hear this warning, it is a call of repentance from the Holy Spirit. It is in fact by such warnings that we are often kept on course. Amen. So it is because of the subtle nature of drift, of drift that the writer is so insistent. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. And the answer to our drifting is to give attention to our attention. Specifically, we must not be slipshod in our faith, but must give attention to how we give attention to the gospel. So how do we do that? Well, some of this may sound straightforward and even simple. But simple and straightforward are what we need in matters of focus. As a preacher in my boyhood, boyhood denomination used to say, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So the first, as the writer of Hebrews will do over and over again, is to fix our eyes on Jesus. He must be our consummate focus. When we consider drift, we must not look at ourselves. We must look at the shore. We must look at the thing that is solid, the thing that is there that we can orient ourselves and give direction. This means addressing the distractions in our life and bringing discipline to our faith. Nothing helps here more than word and prayer. To fill our thoughts with Jesus, to exalt God in our thinking, to exalt God in our coming and going. Amen. The second is to get a grip, a grip on the meaning of the gospel, to give that intentional focus in our lives. The thing that gives a ship grip is an anchor, and grip only works if there's contours, a shape, a definition to what grips. And an anchor illustrates this. An anchor has a definite shape or it cannot work. It would be hard to find a more clear call to gospel-centeredness in the New Testament than these verses. And being centered on the gospel means being clear on the gospel. What do you believe about the gospel? How clear are you about it? Have you ever thought of writing out what you believe about the gospel? It's an exercise that, that, uh, that we've done in leadership school if I recall, and I, I believe I have a version of that right here to look at and center myself and come back to the gospel and bring it uh, to the forefront of my mind. Paul could say, this is my gospel. Can you say, this is my gospel? The third would be to pay attention with fellow believers. It's hard to focus on Jesus alone. It's hard to focus on anything without help. It's hard to maintain a grip on the gospel alone. 
We need to witness the faith of others. And I know it's hard to do this at this time. I'm like everyone else that I've heard zoomed out. Nevertheless, to hear the gospel shared and prayed over Zoom is better than going alone in these days. To hear it shared and prayed over the lips of others and into our ears and into our hearts. To confess our sin to, our, to, to one another and resist drift. So we gather and we scatter. But we would be remiss to leave it here on our shoulders. This doesn't rest on us. The very message when we say it's such a great salvation, it is a salvation that is great because it is God who does the saving. The gospel that we are getting a grip on has got a grip on us, which is why we're here today. Or more specifically, the God of that gospel has got a grip on us or we would never have seen how good and true and beautiful the gospel is. As we are fixing our eyes on Jesus, he is fixing his eyes on us. Paul says this in Philippians 3, verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So then, let us do likewise and do the very opposite of drifting or neglecting. Let us fix our eyes on Christ. Let us take up the word of God with fresh diligence. Let us delight in our God with joyful hearts. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of God that shows us that we have not saved ourselves, but we are saved by your grace Lord, you interrupted our lives and rescued us, Lord, from our rebellion. You delivered us from the power of Satan, sin, and death. And I pray, Lord God, that you would give us uh, the grace, Lord, uh, uh, to delight in your gospel, to hear and be attentive. Help us to do what the writer will, will say in chapter 12, to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.